Hey everyone! Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to encourage you to check out the For the Love of History podcast. Host TK recently had me on to discuss the many scandals of President Grover Cleveland, including his sex scandal, his creepy marriage, and his secret cancer surgery at sea. We had a lot of fun with it! So, if all that sounds fun, which I hope it does, check out the episode titled The Scandals of Grover Cleveland from the For the Love of History podcast. On with the show! Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 26D, an interview on the cabinet of Theodore Roosevelt and his doomed bromance with William Howard Taft with Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. I'm excited to welcome Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky to the show today. Lindsay is a presidential historian, author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, and co-host of the SMU Center for Presidential History's podcast, The Past, The Promise, The Presidency. Uh, SMU, coincidentally enough, is where I got my MBA, and I know some of her co-hosts, they're all awesome people. Today, we are going to talk about Lindsay's specialty, presidential cabinets, in particular, the cabinet of Theodore Roosevelt and his doomed friendship with Secretary of War, William Howard Taft. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you have made almost like a cottage industry of presidential cabinets. Your first book was on Washington's cabinet. You have a second in the works on John Adams' cabinet. Why are presidential cabinets important? This is a great place to start, and I'm so glad you asked. When I started researching Washington's administration, I didn't really know which direction I was going to take, and I started digging into the cabinet discussions. And as I, over many years, uh, did that research and then wrote my first book, I became so convinced that cabinets are the best way to understand presidencies, administrations, and presidential leadership because they are the turning point between a really successful administration and a catastrophic failure. So if a president can't manage the very large egos and ambitions and agendas of the cabinet secretaries, which is sort of a standard you know, starting point, then that goes badly really fast. And if a president is really good at handling those people, then that is such an incredible asset for the administration. So I just became obsessed with this angle of looking at administrations. And I think most people ignore the cabinet or overlook the cabinet. So it was also a good opportunity, which I didn't want to pass up. So Washington and Adams are interesting because Washington picked his own cabinet. And then Adams just kind of like kept Washington's entire cabinet when he became president. And then nobody ever did that again. So why was that a bad idea? Yeah. So, you know, John Adams, one of the real themes of my second book is that it was terrible to be the second president because (laughs) the only image that people had of what it meant to be a president was of George Washington, who was so unparalleled in his stature and reputation, even at the end of his administration when, you know, he had definitely taken some hits, but still he was an unusual figure. And so to try and come next and for Adams, who was so different than Washington to come next It was going to be awful no matter what, but he had a particularly hard time of it. And the American people were really nervous about this process because they had never had a transition before. So they didn't know what that looked like. They didn't know how to do it. They didn't know if it would be peaceful or violent. They couldn't take that for granted. 
They didn't know really how someone else would fill the office or if the office would even work. And so John Adams was coming to the situation thinking, how can I best give people a sense of calm and trust that things will be okay? And so one way to do that was to retain these secretaries to provide some institutional continuity and retain that institutional knowledge. And he felt like they would be loyal to the office of the president, not just the person. Now, this is a theme we are going to come back to time and time again. The person actually really, really matters in the cabinet. It's not the office. And so Adams quickly realized that that was a really bad idea. And most presidents have at least a passing knowledge of history and recognize that that was a really bad idea. And so have been sure, sure to go the opposite direction and try and have their own people around them. Awesome. So the reason I asked that question in an episode about Theodore Roosevelt is that, you know, as, as we just talked about, when someone's elected president, there's now this norm that we expect them to pick their own cabinet. But when a president dies and their vice become president, we seem to expect them to keep the old cabinet in place, which, spoiler alert, is how Teddy Roosevelt will get his cabinet. So wh- why do we have that standard? Well, Once the Constitution was amended to include the 12th Amendment, and that's the amendment that says that basically it changed the electoral structure so that people were very clearly voting for one president and one vice president. So you don't end up with a situation like you did where John Adams was president and his chief rival was vice president. Once that was passed, it was very clear that people were primarily voting for a president. The vice president was usually selected, you know, basically to be someone that breathes and um, someone who maybe would help with electoral balance, but it wasn't someone that people were often familiar with. Maybe they didn't, they weren't as well known or as experienced. So the American people are voting for a president and they expect that person to fill out these important offices. So when the vice president comes into office, they're not really supposed to be there. I mean, constitutionally, (laughs) (laughs) constitutionally they are right. But like, not really. The American people haven't, I mean, they've selected them, but not, you know, that's not really the case. There are, of course, there are, of course, some exceptions, you know, I mean, like there were, there were a lot of conversations about how Dick Cheney was sort of supposed to be the heft behind the ticket. Um, Kamala Harris was a very important addition to the ticket. So, I mean, there are, of course, exceptions, but by and large, the American people expect the vice president to stick to the agenda and the administration of the person that they voted for, which was the top of the ticket. And so most vice presidents, if they've come into office unexpectedly, have attempted to retain as much as possible their predecessor's cabinet. Now, Roosevelt is really interesting because he was very savvy and he had, you know, as a great student of history, knew that this actually doesn't usually go very well. So Andrew Johnson had kept Lincoln's cabinet that was terrible. It, of course, led to his impeachment because, you know, it was, it was such a scandal. And so Roosevelt was very savvy and he understood that that was not a situation that was going to set him up for long term success. But he also understood the expectations that he, you know, work with these people. And he knew that if he didn't keep them, that would also be very damaging to sort of the public trust, to the markets that might lead to some real economic consequences. And so this was sort of his big conundrum coming into office. So in 1901, Teddy Roosevelt is climbing down a mountain in New York when he learns McKinley has been shot. Uh, TR races to Buffalo. He finds McKinley is dead and TR is sworn in. Um, And if I recall, he did follow that tradition of keeping McKinley's cabinet. 
first off, am, am I right there? Did he keep the cabinet? And did he know these guys? Like what relationships existed there? Is, is he signing up to hold on to strangers or what's happening? Well, first, can I say like climbing down a mountain and learning this news is the most Theodore Roosevelt thing ever. Um, (laughs) He's he's just he's so fun to learn about because he's such a larger than life character. Yes. um, Including how he manages his cabinet. So he was familiar with a lot of the people that McKinley had selected. They were sort of the old guard in the Republican Party some of the more conservative wing in the Republican Party, some of the more money interests. And so they didn't really like Roosevelt. Um, he had previously been the assistant secretary of the Navy. He had a lot of ideas and a lot of energy, and people were a little bit worried about him emerging as a rival to McKinley. And so they had arranged this system in which he would be the vice president, which is the most useless office in the world. And he would be you know, tucked in a corner and sort of, it would defang him as a potential rivalry. Yeah. Put him up on a mountain in New York. (laughs) It's fine. Just, it's fine. And, um, and, and he kind of knew that this is what they were doing, but he didn't really feel like he had a choice. So they all knew him. They didn't really trust him. They felt like he was sort of a, you know, wild cannon, which he was. Um, And so when he receives this news, he was immediately incredibly concerned that many of the key cabinet figures were going to resign right away. And that would have been viewed as sort of a vote of distrust or a vote of no confidence in his administration. And that was something that he was not, you know, did not want to start his, his presidency that way. So he arranged for a newspaper editor whose name was Herman Kolstadt. And Herman Kolstadt had been um, a very important power player in sort of crafting the McKinley administration. He had helped to get people like John Hay and Secretary Gage into their positions. And so he carried a lot of weight. Um, Newspaper editors were really powerful, influential figures at the time, which I know is something you've discussed And so what Roosevelt basically convinced this editor to do was to reach out and ask them to stay in the cabinet, at least for a couple of months, just to sort of smooth things over, you know, not not rile up the public. And because he was asking, as opposed to Roosevelt, they said yes. Hmm. So um, and Roosevelt sort of finagled all of this. And then once he got everyone together in a room for the very first cabinet meeting on September 20th, he basically told them all, I'm going to need you to all resign for legal reasons, which is an important, you know, it happens at every transition, but I'm going to need you to all stay and accept reappointment. And he basically said, I cannot accept a no. And we know, you know, from, from some of the stories, how powerful Theodore Roosevelt's personality was. And I suspect that he was banking on the fact that if he could get them in a room, they wouldn't say no to his face. So he needed this editor to secure the promise ahead of time. So, yeah, so it was very sneaky, very tricky, very brilliant. Um, So they, they all said, yes, they all stayed in office, but Roosevelt had no intention of keeping most of them long-term because (laughs) they weren't his people. He just needed them to stay in office for a little bit. And so once there was a new session of Congress, he then asked for the resignation of um, Lyman Gage, who was the secretary of the treasury. He appointed a new secretary of the treasury that was sort of more in line with his own interests. Mm -hmm. And he accepted the resignation of the secretary of the Navy. And his name was John Davis Long. Now, the problem with Long is that Long had previously been Roosevelt's boss when he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. And Roosevelt basically like jumped over him. And that would have been very awkward for anyone. Um, 
But I think especially in this situation, he was very happy to have a replacement there. <laughs> so, so there were seven cabinet members responsible for seven departments when TR became president. You don't have to name all seven, but who were some of the bigger heavy hitters or interesting personalities and, and what makes them interesting? Well, like today, the, some of the big appointments that we think of are the attorney general. At the time, it was the secretary of war. So now we would sort of think of that as the secretary of defense, the secretary of state and the secretary of treasury. Those are understandably sort of, you know, the big heavy hitters. Usually they're the heavy hitters either within the party or they're the positions that have the most influence for policy. And that was true in 1901, and that's true in 2021 or 2022, as the case may be. So those, unsurprisingly, those positions were the ones that uh, Roosevelt was most focused on and he tended to be closest to. So some of the people that were actually in those offices, he ended up having really good relationships with, either pre-existing people like Elihu Root, who had been the Secretary of War under McKinley and stayed on in Roosevelt and then later became actually the Secretary of State. Um, Philander Knox, it was the Attorney General. Uh, he had a very close relationship with Roosevelt. And then uh, Leslie Shaw was his new Secretary of the Treasury. And finally, George Cortelieu. I think I said that right. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> Honestly, how many as you've been saying these names, I'm like, oh, that's how you pronounce Elhu or... or <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's funny. And I think that this is really important when you, when you learn names, when you're reading them, you, you don't practice saying them like, why right. would you? Yeah. So I was recording actually a piece about Roosevelt's cabinet and the editor had to Google how to say Elihu because I didn't know how to say it. And then I, I had to I've been in my head, Elihu for this entire time. <laughs> well, and it, Elihu root doesn't really roll off the tongue. So you kind of have to practice it to get it right. But um <laughs> So those are so those are their sort of the main guys that that Roosevelt really cared about, and the the one that I didn't mention, which I think is perhaps one of the more interesting stories, is John Hay, who was the Secretary of State under McKinley. He that name might be ringing a bell for people. He was one of Abraham Lincoln's personal private secretaries. Went on to have a long esteemed career. It was one of the reasons I think that Roosevelt was so determined to forge a good relationship with Hay because mm -hmm. Lincoln was Roosevelt's, you know, idol and the person he aspired to be most like and the administration he aspired to replicate minus the Civil War, the leadership <laughs> part. <laughs> but so Hay was so important to him because it was this personal connection and they did actually forge a really lovely relationship. It was sort of a father-son relationship because Hay was older uh, Hay sometimes I think wished that he could get Roosevelt to keep his mouth shut, but I think everyone sometimes felt that way about Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah. So uh, those were the big ones. Um, I think the the relationship between Flander Knox and Roosevelt is also really interesting. Knox was incredibly well read. He was very literate. He was very smart. He was very witty. These are all things Roosevelt cared a great deal about. He was also an amazing horseman, which oh. anyone who's read about Roosevelt or even just Google the pictures of him on horseback, you know, yeah. the Roosevelt's were horse people, according to <laughs> TR. So they would go riding in Rock Creek Park in, in Washington, D.C. regularly um, and have competitions about who could jump over higher stuff. And so they had a really lovely relationship. And in fact, the uh, Roosevelt cultivated a really good relationship with the press. Mm. And so reporters were constantly sort of milling in and about the White House and the Roosevelt children were notorious troublemakers. But the kids would often talk to the press and anyone who's had children knows that they don't always keep secrets very well. And mm. so one reporter asked 
one of the children, you know, who, who are your dad's favorite secretaries? <laughs> now, every, <laughs> every, every president has favorites, right? Sure, You're not sure. supposed to say it. You're not right. supposed to say it out loud. And so the children were like, Knox and Root. And um, <laughs> oops. Uh, but so, yeah, that's a pretty good indication of who the favorites were. Uh, was there anyone that TR found challenging to work with? Did, did, was that follow-up question active the kids? Who does TR curse the most at night? <laughs> uh, TR could not keep a secretary of Navy in office. Um, he had six in eight years or seven and a half years. Uh, that's a lot of turnover in one office. And part of, most of the problem was that he could not help himself and he meddled all the time to the point where he like would tell the secretary of the Navy what size spurs the cavalry soldiers should be wearing, which like, this is probably not a detail the president should be focusing on, but he loved the Navy. He thought it was so important. He thought it was central to his vision for American expansionism and the American empire. And of course he had been the assistant secretary of the Navy. So he just could not help himself. And so I'm sure he was a terror to work for if you were one of the secretaries of the Navy. Tell me more about their role, not just in the friendship, but to, to getting kind of his will done to enacting his agenda uh, we mentioned Flander Knox earlier. He's going to be in charge of all these antitrust suits that Roosevelt's so famous for. Uh, John Hay, I'm curious how influential he was. I, I, I often read that, you know, while the relationship was great, Hay was kind of old and TR almost did his own thing with state. So how, yeah, what, what was their role in these things that we know TR for and that he's famous for in our imaginations? Yeah. So um, TR had a really good sense of, where people's loyalties were and what their their concerns and their goals. And he knew when to have someone in the room and when not to have someone in the room. So for example, uh, he didn't tell Root or Hay about these uh, antitrust cases until it was basically public knowledge. And he met with Knox to talk about them regularly, but he didn't want them to meddle because he was, you know, very concerned what they would say. And indeed they weren't really all that pleased. I mean, they didn't, you know, they got on board, they didn't say much, but he was very meticulous about making sure when he was meeting with certain people, if other people were going to be an impediment to that agenda, they weren't invited into the room. Similarly, when he was trying to, you know, broker one of the big moments in his early presidency was the coal strike. And he was trying to broker a solution before winter came and the coal prices skyrocketed. And so he did lean on people like Hay and Shaw, and then eventually Cordelieu later on, who had good connections and ties to some of the moneyed interests, especially in New York. And if they had relationships with people like JP Morgan, he would encourage them to go use those connections. So even though he was this larger than life personality, which he absolutely was, and he expected all credit and all success to go to him, uh, which I think most presidents kind of do, but he definitely took that a little bit uh, to the extreme. He had a, he had a very canny sense about how to sort of work these secretaries and with Hay, it was a good example of Roosevelt knew what he was good at, which was sort of barging into the room, being this larger than life presence, which was very compelling. But then sometimes you needed to have the more nuanced negotiations and conversations and, and details later. So he would often do the first step of barging into the room, coming up with the policy, you know, 
deciding we're going to have a Panama Canal. And then he would leave it to Hay to figure out how to get it done. And Hay was really good at that because he was a seasoned diplomat. He was much more of a calmer presence. He was older. Um, And so I think it was one of those examples of he found really effective partnerships and ways to make them work, even if he was, you know, not always the easiest person to work for. (laughs) Um, Okay, so now speaking of of people he developed great friendships with, we're going to start working toward perhaps like one one of the most famous, most important, most consequential ones, and that's Taft. And and that starts with kind of on, on February 1st, 1904, Secretary of War Elihu Root retired to go practice law and make some money. And Roosevelt convinced his friend, William Howard Taft, who was kind of the uh, civilian governor of the Philippines, uh, to take over as new secretary of war. Can you give me what's the background on Roosevelt and Taft? How did they know each other? Kind of what did they see in each other? Well, Taft and TR had been buddies actually for a really long time. They were kind of like the odd couple of friends. They were so different. They looked so different. They acted so different. And, and so in a lot of ways that really worked. They had first met in Washington, D.C. when Roosevelt was heading the Civil Service Commission and Taft was the U.S. Solicitor General. Um, As an aside, people should, I really encourage people to look into Taft's sort of record prior to the the Roosevelt administration and his career, because he had a remarkable civil service and public career, um, which I think we often kind of forget. Anyway, so they were both in D.C. They both were young They both had lovely, enchanting wives. They were both having children at the same time. So they had young families and the families just really bonded. And I think Taft was, you know, uh, photography doesn't really capture this, but he was very amiable. He was very warm. He had a very good sense of humor. He was very honorable and hardworking and pleasant to be around and thoughtful. And these were all qualities that Roosevelt liked and, you know, endeared Taft to Roosevelt. And so they had a really lovely friendship prior to any of this happening. Um, Taft then went to the Philippines and he was the governor of the Philippines and he was an incredibly competent and capable manager. So when he, when his job was to execute things, he was great at it. And he had a very linear judicial mind. So that worked really well in this capacity. So when Root retired. At this point, a lot of other advisors had also left office. So Knox had left office. Hay died the next year. So some of the sort of old guard that Roosevelt had really, you know, spent his first term with, they were gone. And so he wrote to Taft and he said, I'd like you to come be my secretary of war. You will be the foremost member of my cabinet and my daily counselor and advisor on basically all major decisions. Roosevelt really knew how to flatter people when he wanted to, when he wanted something. And he really knew how to get at all of their sort of, you know, innermost workings. So he, you know, really put on full court press and got, got Taft to come and take this position by all accounts. Taft was an excellent secretary of war as well. So it's sort of, once they were in this position, they worked really well together. They had a really good working relationship and Taft was a very competent person. So it, you know, it, it did work well once they were both in office. I'm curious, did I, I've read that Taft almost had like an outsized role, like he was more than secretary of war. He was traveling around the world often, like I think he was negotiating with the Vatican at some point. Maybe that was when he was still in the Philippines, I forget. But is is that true? Like, was he almost like a supersized cabinet official? What Did TR stay true to his word that, you know, you are going to be my number one guy? 
Yeah, he did. Absolutely. Um, Taft was absolutely more than sort of the average secretary of war. Partly this was because this was in the last year of Hay's life. So he was fairly old. He was declining in his capacities. He was tired. And so Taft, I think, took on some of those responsibilities. Um, Some of the, because some of the antitrust things had died down, the attorney general had a less prominent role. And so, and, and Roosevelt really was the type of president who wanted to work with people as opposed to offices. So if someone was an office that he really worked closely with or well with, that was where a lot of his energies were focused. Okay. And and so at the end of Roosevelt's second term, and he'd announced he's not going to run again, he decided he liked Taft so much that he was going to vigorously campaign for Taft to follow him as president. What did TR see in Taft that inspired him to do this? And was this normal? a president picking an heir in their cabinet and hitting the trail for them? It's a great, it's a great question. And it's, uh, it's a pretty baffling story. So <laughs> not only had TR announced that he wasn't going to run, he had announced that when he, in, in 1904, when he won his first right. election, which generally is not a very advisable strategy. <laughs> um, <laughs> you want to keep your cards close to your chest. You don't want to tell people that you're going to be a lame duck president. Uh, he regretted that, not instantaneously, but pretty quickly. Uh, and his wife was just like, "Are you kidding me?" She like <laughs> literally like see her face palming when he said. And he, he's so young too. It's not like he's so he was young. president when he became so president. So young, yeah. so young. He wasn't even fifty yet. So like you know, I think that. Um, so, but because he had announced this, and people took him at his word. Uh, they had they spent the next four years speculating about who would be next. And I think that had he not made that announcement, there wouldn't have been that speculation. There wouldn't have been that pressure for Roosevelt to sort of pick a successor. But there was. And so there were you know several sort of names within the party that were batted around that represented different factions. It was widely understood that there needed to be someone who spoke to or at least didn't turn off the more progressive elements of the party. So someone like Root, who had was serving actually in Congress at the time, was considered for this position, but he had connections to more conservative corporations. And so he was going to be unpalatable to that part of the party. So Taft, because he had been in a series of judicial positions, and then he had been the governor, and then he had been the secretary of war, he didn't have the same enemies that a lot of the other people had. He didn't have a lot of the same sort of, um, you know, strikes against them. This is like when we, when we think today of cabinet secretaries, if they've had a lot of other political positions, they've often had to make political statements and that's held against them. So same thing with Taft. He kind of had a clean slate. He was, as I said, an incredibly competent administrator. He was very thoughtful, very smart. He was pretty well-liked by everyone because he was a pleasant person. So there was a sense, I think a public sense, that he was the right person to succeed TR because he agreed, or at least appeared to agree, with a lot of the principles and the strategies but he was going to be a little bit less of a bull in the China shop about it. He was going to be better at dealing with Congress. He was going to be better at securing bipartisan negotiation. And so he could actually maybe get the job done that TR had started, but then sort of his big personality got in the way. So there was this sense that maybe he would be the right person. And TR both agreed with that and then fed that because he did have 
the highest opinion of Taft, both personally and professionally. He believed that Taft was on the same page about all the same goals and wanted to pursue the same things. It seems like Taft gave him some pretty explicit, uh, we don't, I mean, we obviously don't know because the conversations they had in person, there's no documentation of those, the things that they said later, it's, you know, hard to know how much of people are not always the most reliable uh, narrators of their own actions when they are making that narration many years later. But it seems like Taft gave Roosevelt some pretty explicit confirmation that he would both retain a lot of the same secretaries of the cabinet, but also retain the same goals for his administration. So TR dove in head first. And at that point, I mean, now we kind of expect former presidents to campaign for people of their of their party. You know, Obama sort of famously stayed out of the primaries until the end this last go round and then helped secure a uh, everyone getting behind Biden. But then once Biden was selected, he was obviously one of Biden's most effective advocates. Yeah, that happened. That I think TR was really one of the first people to do that. And that's partly just because, as you said, he was so young. (laughs) <laughs> so many other presidents were really old when they retired yeah. and they kind of just wanted to go home and like not do anything. <laughs> yeah. And TR couldn't be, you know, held down. So, um, and he believed so strongly in, in the principles of the party and in progressive reform. And so he was just so enthusiastic that it's kind of unsurprising that he did so. Now I'm, I'm getting a little bit of ahead of my narrative, but after ha- helping Taft win the white house, TR will ultimately sour on Taft in part because of issues between Taft and his cabinet and and some of those uh, promises that you mentioned were made. What went wrong there and what were the consequences of that spoiled relationship? So this is one of those questions that I think probably there are a bunch of different factors and there's no wrong answer Mm because all of them probably contributed. Yeah. If TR had been in the United States and had seen what was going on. I'm not sure that he would have come to the same conclusion because Taft was actually an incredibly effective president. He got a lot done as president. He was able to get tariff reform, which didn't go as far as progressives would have liked, but nonetheless, he got passed. He got a new, he got a new railroad bill that bolstered the interstate commerce commission, which had the ability to, Um, keep down rate hikes, which had been an important sort of antitrust measure. He created a new um, commerce uh, organization that sort of um, allowed for, you know, more competitive pricing. He helped bring in new states to the union. He had new campaign requirement reporting requirements so that you could, could see where money interests were influencing elections. He had a new bureau for mine worker safety, and he created a new bank um, that was really targeted to help lower income folks have a safe place to put their funds. He also got a corporate income tax passed, and he got an amendment that allowed for individual income tax passed. So like, these are huge (laughs) accomplishments, and they are very progressive accomplishments. Yeah. Now, some of them are not necessarily as flashy as like national parks, but they're very important very important reforms. And they were all made possible because he was willing to allow more conservative interests to add some amendments to the tariff bill. So mm-hmm. he was really good at the negotiations in Congress that required these types of things. Because 
TR was first in Europe and then in Africa for a while, I don't think that he saw a lot of these reforms. And so instead, what happened was he was in, he was abroad and he was hearing reports from some of the more progressive reformers. And they were particularly outraged, both about the tariff bill, these amendments that were more conservative. But then also, in particular, they focused on natural conservation. And that was, I think, where Taft and TR most explicitly disagreed. I don't even necessarily think that they disagreed in principle per se, but Taft, because he was such a judicial person, he, I think, sometimes felt like TR went beyond the bounds of executive authority. So he agreed with TR's goals, but maybe not the way that he went about implementing them. Got it. Got it. And so one of the things that Taft did when he came into office was he removed the Secretary of the Interior, who was James Garfield. And this is President James Garfield's son. Right. And he installed Richard. <laughs> not the dead president. <laughs> not the dead president. There are no ghosts at the Secretary of the Interior, as far as we know. Yeah. Um, and he installed Richard Bollinger, who was uh, a friend of Taft. And Bollinger basically immediately returned 3 million acres to private use from uh, conservation and then proceeded to have a series of interdepartmental squabbles with some of the people at the administration. And that culminated in the firing of Pinchot, who had been the um, main conservationist under TR's administration, had really been, had spearheaded the effort to preserve the national forests and national parks, and was a celebrated conservationist. So when he was fired, this was a line in the sand for Roosevelt. Now, he was fired because he kind of spoke out against Bollinger in sort of an inappropriate way and was very (laughs) critical of Taft. So the firing itself was understandable. While he was upset, but the the issues he was upset about were also sort of understandable from a conservationist perspective. And so Pinchot went to Europe after being fired to go meet with Roosevelt to tell his side of the story. And he brought with him letters from all of these progressive groups that were outraged. Now, I think it's important to recognize sort of how politics work. Even today, progressive or more conservative groups, their job is to push their president to continue to do more. Even if they like what the president has achieved, their job is always to ask for more. So the fact that progressive groups were sort of displeased with Taft was sort of par for the course. They had also been displeased with Roosevelt. Roosevelt hadn't achieved everything they had wanted him to Yeah, what president has anyone ever been just like fully happy with, you know? (laughs) (laughs) No one. It's impossible to please everybody. So uh, Roosevelt receives this news and he decides that he is, you know, outraged that Taft has betrayed his vision. But the part of it that's really hard to measure is, as we've discussed, he was a young man. He was still full of life. He would have run for a third term had he not made that pledge. He, in fact, sometimes said that he would have cut off his right hand if he could take it back. And I think that his ego really didn't like being out of the ring. He gave that famous man in the arena speech. He liked being in the arena. His children later said that he wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at any, at every funeral. And he did. And so how much of it was like, he was mad at Taft and how much of it was that he thought he could do better. It's really hard to say. Yeah. So what, what were the consequences of this? Let's hit on that last part. They have this falling out. 
And and that does seem to have big consequences in, in 1912. It does. They have a huge falling out. Poor Taft is so heartbroken about this because they had really been like best friends and he desperately wanted Roosevelt's support. Roosevelt tried to angle for the Republican Party nomination, which was blocked by some of the more conservative financial groups within the party. So Taft retained the Republican Party nomination and Roosevelt decided to form a third party, the Bull Moose Party. And in doing so, because he still was very popular, he still had a very broad base of support. He split the vote and Woodrow Wilson was elected, who was, of course, a Democrat and came into office in 1912. And um, sort of the rest is history. So there we go. Cabinets, making presidents, (laughs) ending presidents, changes in the White House. They're important. They're really important. (laughs) Um, What lessons in leadership can we learn from TR and his cabinet? This is the last question I always love to ask everyone I speak to. Roosevelt is such a great example of both what to do and maybe what not to do, (laughs) um, which is really useful, right? So Um, One of the things, as I mentioned, one of the things that Roosevelt did so well was he knew best how to work with different people and had different approaches for different secretaries. You cannot apply the same relationship or the same mold to to everyone. He also knew when to have group meetings and when not to. And that was um, something that Jefferson had first actually pioneered. So, you know, Roosevelt was really smart about not bringing in people into a room if they were not going to be helpful. Presidents that have been really great managers have done the same thing. Lincoln was the same way. Roosevelt's uh, extend, I never remember how many removed it is, but sort of distant cousin, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt was also really good at that. So I think that that is an important leadership model. Roosevelt was um, so charismatic that he was able to kind of pick up a whole movement and put it on his shoulders and really got the ball rolling with progressive reform on a national scale. Now, of course, so much of that work had already previously been done by activists and journalists, but he gave it a national voice in a way that hadn't been done. So that's a a huge positive, but it also has limitations. Um, As I said, you know, Taft was actually better at managing the congressional part of it. I think Taft got more passed through Congress than Roosevelt did. He, because he was a less ostentatious personality and was more willing to sort of negotiate and work behind the scenes, that has real attributes, but that also has its limitations because it doesn't have that colorful flair. And the American people sometimes like colorful flair. So yeah, we do. (laughs) Yeah, we do. We really like our big personalities. I mean, especially when there's not Hollywood yet to entertain us. Come on, give us something. (laughs) Exactly. So I think the... I think the lesson there is that you actually really need both. You need the personality, but that's not enough, nor is the really competent management enough. You have to have some of both. And if the president can't do both himself, then he needs to have people around him that can help him do that. If you'd like to hear more from Lindsay, please check out The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. Uh, Give her a listen on The Past, The Promise, The Presidency. Give her a follow on Twitter at L.M. Chervinsky or sign up for her newsletter, lindsaytravinsky.substack.com. She is one of the best followers out there on social media and on anything on presidential and political history. You won't regret it. Thank you for your time, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice, and tell your friends about the show. It's always great to get new listeners. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll talk to author David Pietrusha about the wild and zany post-presidency of Theodore Roosevelt, which kind of looks like a crazy quest for death and glory. There will be a safari, an assassination attempt, a journey down a dangerous and unexplored Amazon River, and multiple requests to be sent to the infamous deadly trenches of World War I. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.